Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Later in the show, we'll be looking at the latest turn of events at Independent News and Media with Colm Keena, Bank of Ireland's planned management call with Joe Brennan and flux in global stock markets with Chris Johns. But first, we're going to start with our usual roundup of the main stories of the week. And I'm joined for this segment by Laura Slattery of the Irish Times. Laura, we're going to start with moneylenders. Some statistics from the Central Bank of Ireland yesterday uh, showing that the number of people using moneylenders in Ireland, rather depressingly, is at a, is at a near all-time high. Yes, it's depressing and it's a little concerning. Um, the number, according to Central Bank, is 350,000 in 2017. The all-time high was in 2013 when it was 360,000. So it hasn't really gone down yeah. that much. That, that's the year we were in. That was the yeah, last we year were of our still, bailout. Yeah, we were still, you know, economy was mm. still struggling to recover. Well, we're very uh, much in recovery now. What's you, going on? Well, on, on paper, certainly. But I suppose the, the thing with money lenders, um, you know, who is basically any lender that charges... Um, an annual percentage rate of interest of twenty three percent or more. You know they they have they're very clever and they're very good at targeting particular communities uh, whenever they have pressure points and emergencies and uh, uh, where they need uh, money quickly. Short term cash flow problems. Absolutely, yeah. and uh, a lot of the 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 contact might be um, well. I don't know how much of the contact they make. It, it has been unsolicited certainly in, in times and there's advertising. Uh, of course, it's very persuasive. There's deals, you know, things that sound like deals on paper target, targeted at people who might not have all the cash up front. Um, there's like some sort of, there's, you know, sometimes hidden clauses that catch people out. And the APRs can be as high as 288%. I mean, I mean you know, as, as many years ago, I wrote about personal finance regularly and we used to uh, warn against the high rate of interest rates on credit cards, who are, which are, you know, you know 15, 16%. And, and these money lenders charge 100% or more. And of course, the whole idea is that they're, 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 they're looking for the business of people who are locked out of sort of normal credit situations or feel like they can't. Sure, and this is lending really very much for the short term, not for, yeah, you, shouldn't, you yeah. shouldn't be holding these loans clearly for a yeah. year if you're 
having to pay 288%. So there was 268 million advanced last year and the central bank has announced a consultation on some mm. measures that might be able to protect you know, the people a little bit better. The St. Vincent de Paul has, has uh, put out several warnings about this over the years about the way in which people are ex- exploited. So I think a consultation is timely. Um, I don't see why the, the sector should be as large as it is. I mean, arguably... It How many lenders are we, are we talking about? What level of detail do we have on the lenders? Well, there's 39 licensed money lenders, as I understand it. I mean, that you know, that's the official licensed money lenders, and, and sort of uh, about 84 percent of the market is 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 for firms. So these they're not they're not all you know you know it's not like you're just you know the the guy at the end of the street you know who's got a sideline and this kind of thing and. Knocks, knocks and doors, door. Then, like these are sort of professional proper. operators. Yeah. They, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think I don't see why they shouldn't. Any be names a you want to share with us? Well, there's, there's one crowd, Provident, who um, they offer a face-to-face service. So, you know, the consumer applies for the loan online. The agent subsequently presents at the home to approve and, and grant the money. And the firm says earnings for its agents, you know, which are based on collections, mm. are unlimited. So that sort of points to, you know, for the money lenders, it's, this is a, a thriving uh, market. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, the question is, is this good for society? Obviously, it's not. Yeah. And is there any sense from the central bank as to why these numbers might be increasing at a time when employment is going up and, you know, the economy definitely is in recovery? Um, I don't think there is really. I think I think it's just just uh, sort of almost one of those things. It's all, it's always been with us, and uh, maybe the time has come to try and stamp it out a bit more. Right. Okay. Well, now maybe some of these people have been using money lenders to bolster their retail sales capacity, because we've yeah. had some figures uh, this week from the CSO, which showed that retail sales really uh, had a very strong February. Yeah, so obviously, you know, some consumers are struggling. Others are back in the market, shall we say, and they're spending on big ticket items, Mm. discretionary purchases, um, things that were hard hit during the recession are seeing really strong growth uh, according to the the most recent uh, retail sales. So we're talking about furniture, Yeah, lighting, electrical goods. All those things are showing really good, good, strong rates of of recovery and, 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 and growth. And overall, core retail sales, they were up 0.6% in February, month on month, and they're up 6.3% on the annual basis, which is huge and an accelerated rate of growth. Um, now, the headline retail sales, as, as we call it, is up just 2%, but that's because motor sales are, are, are in a bit of declining mode ever since uh, Sterling collapsed. People have been buying their cars in the UK, or a certain number have, uh, has, which has dented that mm. market. But but just, yeah, generally, the consumer spending picture you know, for 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 those who who have are in employment, uh, it seems to be quite uh, strong. And Davy uh, Research, uh, part of Davy Stockbrokers, expects uh, retail sales to increase by about three percent, and this year that'll be up from one point nine percent in two thousand and seventeen. Yeah, so that's that's a really uh, that's quite a strong signal strong of where picture. the economy is going. And, and we've seen that from individual retailers as well. Um, we saw that uh, this week we we did. Uh, Curry's PC World posted good profit for last year. The company has sort of turned a corner, and uh, its pa- its parent company, Dixon's Carphone Ireland, you know, was saying this week. You know, the managing director there, Mark Delaney, saying, "Well, it's just it's just consumer confidence. It's it's at a high." Um, and you know, there's people up out there. You know, they they're big on, on on white goods as well. Of course, of course, uh, computing and all, and all that kind of side of things. You know, they see people they're redecorating their houses, they're revamping their properties, and they're there to pick up that business. Yeah. 
Okay, now finally we want to talk about Netflix. We've long known that it's popular, it's been growing in popularity in Ireland, but we now have some figures to back it up. Well, yes. I mean, it's, this is an estimate that I've done based on a survey that Comreg did, which found that two in five households has uh, act, uses Netflix, um, so that they say they use, use Netflix. So if you base that, it was actually the exact figure was 42%. So if you look at, say, the number of uh, fixed residential broadband subscriptions there are in the country, and that's 1.24 million. And if you take, and you need a you yeah. obviously need broadband. Yeah, I mean you, you you essentially do need fixed yeah. residential you, you broadband. You I mean there are other people who might use it in other sure. capacities. So 42 percent of that equates yeah, to yeah 521,000. So right. uh, I mean there are as well as there is more potential for growth as well. It's a big number that it's it's, it's higher than the previous estimate we had we had, which was a little bit out of date. Um, but there's, yeah, there's competition coming growth. down the track, isn't there? I mean Amazon Prime is a yeah. prime example. Amazon Prime is a prime example, but it's it's it, there, it might be that Netflix has just benefited from being here a lot, little First bit earlier. You know, Amazon yeah. Prime is only used by five percent of, of people according to the same survey, and, um, and we have now TV, now TV. Uh, from Sky as well, yeah. which is slightly different, but it's nonetheless yes, it's kind of monthly passes, a little bit more expensive, but arguably the content is a bit more premium. So that's about, it was used by eleven percent of the people in this in this study, and of course some of that co- the content is accessed by uh, most of it. In fact, you know, is more the more popular route still to accessing that is through your Sky uh, television uh, package, which is you know they're the most popular yeah. pay TV uh, company in the country. And but they are you know it's not you know the reason they launched Now TV of course was because people are sort of looking at Netflix as a kind of a cheap alternative uh, to how they you know entertain mm. themselves. Well, do, they do risk cannibalizing their their traditional customer base, don't they? They absolutely do, and that's been a, a, a that that has been a, a sort of a factor for Sky. Um, but they obviously felt it was uh, confident enough, and of course, Now TV was in the UK market before it launched here. They're confident enough that that wasn't going to happen to any huge degree, and in fact, they would just pick up these extra extra bits of custom. Uh, I suppose you could call it a discretionary purchase, but everybody needs to entertain themselves. Yeah, and if you're a Netflix uh, subscriber and you're also a Formula One motor racing fan, then some good news because they're going behind the scenes in the Formula One season uh, this year, and they're going to produce a series of programs. That's right. Um, we have. Um, it's uh, interesting for Formula One fans if you're not a Does Formula this One. Excite you, Laura? Uh, I have to say no. <laughs> the only thing I know about Formula One is that Steve Jones presents it for Channel Four. That's as far as I, 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 as far as, as as much as I know. Um, right. But um, luckily, there are about 699 other Netflix shows being launched <laughs> this year. <laughs> so uh, you know, right. what are you looking forward to? <laughs> give, give us one or two titles that you're uh, you're looking forward to. Um, I'm probably yeah, God. What am so, I looking so forward to? to choose from. Yeah, probably the return of of some of the uh, ones that I've enjoyed in the past. Like creatures of habit, you know, it's hard to take a plump on something new. I really enjoyed their series Glow uh, about uh, the ladies wrestling. It's kind of comedy, so that should be back for a second series at some point. So I'll say better Glow. call Saul. Any sense of that? Is that coming back? I think so. I don't think I haven't heard that of. of uh, better call Saul being <laughs> cancelled so uh, yeah um, there's just so many to choose from Alright plenty to look forward to we're going to take a short break now when we return you'll be hearing about INM job cuts at Bank of Ireland and Chris Johns on global stock markets back in a few moments Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement Irish Life is changing that with Empower a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future For more go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant We know Irish Life We are Irish Life Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015 
Now, welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Let me remind you that you can download this podcast for free on iTunes. It's also available on SoundCloud and on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, for this part of the show, we're going to be looking at uh, the latest goings on at INM, uh, some job cuts at Bank of Ireland, and also taking a look at the global stock markets. And I'm joined for this segment by Colm Keena, legal correspondent of the Irish Times, Joe Brennan, markets correspondent with the Irish Times, and Chris Johns, an economist and columnist with the Irish Times. We'll hear from Chris uh, in a few moments about global stock markets. We'll start with INM and Colm. This is a story. Uh, INM, of course, being in, being independent news and media. This is a story you've been following for a while. We've had some extraordinary events at the company over the last eighteen months, but it took an even further twist last weekend when it emerged that the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement is going to go to the High Court uh, in April to seek the appointment of an inspector at the company. Tell us all. Yeah, well, there's um, there's two, there were two issues there. First of all, the attempted uh, or, yeah, attempted uh, purchase by uh, the independent group of the News Talk, uh, uh, Dennis O'Brien's News Talk. Yeah, this uh, is in late 2016. Season. Yes, and um, there was a dispute within the Irish independent group about how much... Uh, the Indo should pay mm. for 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 that, and um, the ch- then chief executive um, believed that the um, this is Robert Pitt, Robert Pitt, the price being suggested was too high, and it seems that the then chairman of the company, uh, Leslie Buckley, might have been in favour of, of a higher price, and there was a um, subcommittee uh, set up in the in the company to look at this, and it came to no um, conclusion. But it seems there was two. There were two sides to it. There yeah. was, it was never camps. formally put to the board. In it was the never. No, it was a subcommittee look at it. Couldn't come to any any decision. But there was obviously a very big gap between, mm. uh, you know, the, the the amount of money and and the versions of events. Uh, Mr. Pitt then made a, a protective disclosure to uh, the office of the director of corporate. So he became a whistleblower in effect. Became a whistleblower and, and was was a whistleblower. Well, still in situ at the company. Um, then this, a second issue arose of an apparent data breach uh, involving uh, data from the Irish Independent Group. And um, again, a subcommittee was set up and it appeared to be going nowhere. Um, but then the, the Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement seems to have taken a very uh, strong interest in this uh, second issue. And um, the next we heard was that uh, there was a case before the High Court involving uh, the ODCE trying to get documentation of Leslie Buckley relevant to this data breach. Mm. He was still chairman of INM. And he was still chairman of INM, but INM weren't party party to the case. So it was a very extraordinary uh, circumstance. Curious, curious. Very curious. And uh, then we discovered that this this data, it seems like quite a quantity of data, had been given to a company in Wales, Trusted Data Solutions, for reconstruction, it seems, or that's certainly what they... They do. They kind of reconstruct uh, databases, mm. and What's this. That mean? What, what do you mean I don't know, but it seems that this data came from the independent servers. A load of electronic information, let's call it, and then you give it to these specialist companies, and they reconstruct it, so you can read it. You know, as a human, you can read it and and maybe you know analyze Interpret it and, and so on. Yeah, okay. yeah, and navigate your way through it and so on. So why why the hell anybody be doing that? Uh, we still don't know. But uh, Leslie Buckley told the court that it was part of a, um, a, a cost reduction exercise, which we still quite don't, don't really understand. But um, 
The, the, the ODC seemed oh, to ask two very pertinent yeah, questions. One, well, why was this done? Yeah. And secondly, who how, paid for it? How would it benefit the Irish Independent Group to send these guys uh, trusted data solutions to reconstruct the uh, uh, this data from the Irish Independent uh, servers? And uh, who paid for it? And we don't know the answer to those questions or whether Leslie Buckley um, answered those questions. But the the obvious, or the, the, the you know, the really odd, odd thing is, obviously the Indo hadn't answered those questions or they wouldn't have had to ask Leslie Buckley those questions. So, and the Indo says it's fully cooperated with the uh, with the And the, uh, the has also indicated, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but they've also indicated that they did not foot the bill. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So there's a big question mark over yeah. who did foot so, the bill and, and, and why this happened. And how something like this, I mean, here's all this data coming out of the data server as part of a cost reduction service uh, exercise, it seems, mm. and going off to a company in Wales and you have these IT specialist guys giving Leslie Buckley advice mm. and... Um, and so on. And the company can't seem, doesn't seem to be able to tell the Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement what the hell was going on mm. because it's not in possession of the uh, information. And it seems that the go-to man is Leslie Buckley, you know, which now, is Leslie really Buckley strange. Leslie Buckley has since uh, stepped down as uh, yeah, chairman yeah, on, on March right. 4th. That's first, right, yeah. they made some new appointments to the board as a new yeah. chairman, Murdoch McLennan, who's a UK media yeah. uh, veteran. And then we had these, this turn of events um, last weekend, which came out of the, a bolt from the blue. Yeah, no, th- so that's the strange thing. The, um, and we should say Robert Pitt has left the company. He Robert left last Pitt October. Left the company, and this has been going on for quite some time. And the company has said it's cooperated fully with uh, with the inquiry that the ODC has been uh, conducting. Uh, so, what's the import of the ODC so, seeking so, the appointment of an inspector? Well, you see, you need a you need a uh, a reason why you're going from one form of inspection into another. So you're going you're going to the High Court, and you, this is a really big thing. These th- these sort of inspectors. Uh, don't get appointed, you know, every every year. You know, there's been four or five of them in the last couple of decades, um, and uh, so this is a really, really big step in 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 the role of the Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement. Uh, it's a real big de- development for a, an Irish company, and so on. And we don't really know as yet what it is that's in that that that's the Director of Corporate Enforcement knows that he thinks justifies. Moving from the, uh, the 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 inspection he's already conducted up to this, you know, nuclear option of appointing high yeah, court. It's inspection. not quite a nuclear option though, because they could go for a criminal they investigation. Could, they could, but the bar could. is much higher they for could. a criminal. The they bar of proof uh, is much higher for but a criminal. Investigation. It's interesting that um, the the judge who's going to make the judgment call, uh, Peter Kelly, the president of the high court, he made the judgment call in the case of DCC. Yeah. Um, I think, I think he also did. Correct me if I'm wrong again, but I think he also did in the case of National Irish Bank. Which uh, predates uh, DCC as well. Yeah, he might he might well off he might well off. But in the DCC fives one, we had, this was through the ringer. It had been all you know weeks and months in the high court and up to the supreme court and so on. So he was asked he asked questions in that judgment that were quite interesting. In that, well, look, you know loads of stuff about all of this, and what's the point of um, of appointing an inspector when when all a load of information about all this is already available? And there has to be a proportionality. The consequences for the company are very severe. A lot of investors have invested in this company. Mm. And the um, company fought the appointment yeah, to nail. Yeah, they fought the appointment. But he made a, a judgment that on balance, there was a public interest argument and uh, and uh, he, he approved the appointment of the inspectorship. So I, I presume similar uh, details will have to be considered by him now when this comes up before him in April um, because... You know, there's the damage to the company or the, the strain it will put on the company. The fact that the ODCE have been um, have 
already got a lot of information as part of their sort of their previous uh, authorized uh, uh, inquiries into it. So now you're pitching into a, a bigger beast that'll produce a, a report that'll probably be published and so on. But there has to be a purpose for that. That's over and but you know that will yield important information or uh, or is targeted against mm. an issue and against po- which they don't already have information. And possibly inform uh, a, a further civil or criminal case. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so the the um, the reasons for appointing an inspector, you know, are, are set out in the act. And this, you know, the, the mismanagement of a company, uh, possible uh, criminal or, or, or unlawful conduct by the company, by officers of the company and so on. There's a long list defrauding the uh, potential defraud of creditors, potential defraud of, uh, of shareholders and so on. Yeah, right. Um, how long will it take? I mean, first of all, it's April the 16th is the date for the High Court uh, for the application to yeah. have a, an inspector appointed. Um, who gets appointed in these uh, types of situations? What type of person gets appointed? Well, it's sometimes an experienced senior counsel. It's sometimes, you know, a, uh, a an accountant, you know, somebody who, who can negotiate the kind of uh, issues that might be particular. Mm. In the case like, like in NIB, there was, there was accountants involved. Um, in um, Ansbacker, there was a judge involved, uh, a retired judge, uh, as well as senior counsel. Uh, an interesting aspect of it, I was thinking, is a lot of the uh, if senior figures in corporate Ireland, uh, in the, the uh, corporate law, you know, would have had dealings over the years with some of the parties who are shareholders in independent news and media. So they're, they're, I'm not saying that they're, they're precluded from being appointed, but there's a lot of people maybe who have acted for parties who would have an interest in the case will be who perhaps to be question marks over there being the inspectors. Right. Okay. Um, if the court grants the application by the ODC, we've yet to see if the company is going to fight it. And if it does decide to challenge it, and even if the court rules in favour of the ODC, I, I guess it could be appeals by INM. So this could go on for a, a little while. But let's let's just hypothesise for a moment and say that an inspector does uh, finally get appointed and goes to work at INM. How long before they come up with a report? Well, it depends, I suppose, what they find, how difficult it is to find it. It can be a year, it could be two could years, be it could be shorter, you know. So this and, is a, this is yeah. something that could drag on and on it's for, a, yes, for quite exactly. some time. And, uh, you know, take a lot of management time, inv- involve a lot, the, uh, incurring a lot of costs. Um, the final report then might have implications for costs, depending mm-hmm. on what's in it. Um and so on. So there's all those considerations, yeah. Um, okay, Colin, listen, that's going to be heard on uh, April 16th. 16th. We might get yeah. you uh, back in uh, in or around that time when we're doing a podcast just to update uh, listeners on, on what happened and what the court uh, heard. It could be quite interesting. But for now, we'll let you go. Thanks for that, Colin. I'm going to uh, switch now to Joe Brennan to talk about a story that Joe had uh, this week, an exclusive about job cuts at Bank of Ireland. Uh, Joe, you're reporting that uh, Francesca McDonough, the uh, CEO of Bank of Ireland, she joined the bank in October of last year. That she's uh, made her first move, if you like, to try and tackle costs within the bank by uh, deciding that they can cull the management rank. Some fifteen percent of senior uh, and lower level middle managers uh, effectively could 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 leave the bank. Yeah, <clears throat> I suppose um, she first signalled uh, Francesca McDonough when she held uh, a conference call after the full results were unveiled at the end of last month. 
she flagged in that that costs which had moved up incrementally to about one point operating costs moved up to about one point nine billion that they would have to look at costs and bring them down this year. So there was some element of flagging. Uh, that they were going to have to address costs. This is the first tangible uh, thing we've seen in terms of our efforts to to bring down costs this, the, so far this year. Um, we understand that um, they're looking to uh, get rid of 15% of what they call grade 4 to grade 6. That has been explained to me by sources from someone in a, a large branch, a manager of a large branch, right up to just underneath the executive committee. Um, the bank obviously declined to comment on this and wouldn't give us the, the, the number of people that are actually in these, well, in these ranks. The ballpark? We're, our sources are indicating or, or estimate uh, that you're talking somewhere in the region about 150 to 200. And that's across both Ireland and the UK. The company itself has about 11,200 employees across the board. Um, the other thing is that there's going to be a much bigger uh, cost-cutting exercise coming down the tracks when they when the bank kind of works through and communicates to the market what it expects from its massive 900 million euro IT programme. It's been fairly reticent up until now to give any kinds of details. The only detail they've put out is that the bank would like to cut its uh, cost income ratio, which is currently about 62%, down to 50%. And that's a a target that banks the world over uh, keep on iterating as a a target. But they they really need to get there. so we understand as of late last year, now this was before Francesca had taken over as 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 a chief executive of Bank of Ireland, that the bank was working off figures of a thousand people plus. Now that wasn't sanctioned by her, that may be reviewed, and we would expect a good bit more detail coming from the, the company's capital market state, which is basically Francesca's first chance to really outline to the markets, to invest the shareholders. Mm-hmm what her medium-term targets are. And I think there's a big expectation that there'll be a lot of detail on what this uh, IT programme involves and what kind of targets it can hope to achieve from it. Right. So this is her putting her first real stamp on the business, I guess, Joe, is it? Well, certainly in terms Since of... taking over from Richard Boucher? Yeah, certainly in terms of cutting costs. She's already kind of gone into the executive committee, which she's a member of. These are her most senior executives. And there has been a good bit of change on, on that up until now. We saw in January that uh, Lee McLaughlin, who was the head of Retail Ireland, which is the largest division by far in the group, that he was stepping down. Um, we found out subsequently uh, earlier this month that uh, Gavin Kelly is moving into his his position. Also on the executive committee, uh, Michael Torpy, um, who joined the bank a number of years ago, he was with the Department of Finance, had previously been with permanent TSB, Ulster Bank. Um, he was uh, he is um, CEO of Corporate and Treasury. He's um, retiring over the summer months. And also Peter Morris, who's the Chief Governance and, and, and Regulatory office, uh, Officer, who's also stepping down. Um, before that, we saw uh, other senior guys like uh, Mark Cunningham and uh, Mick Sweeney uh, leave the company. That, that was before Francesca um, uh, moved into that role. So there has been a good bit of overhaul. Um, mm. I guess you'd level. expect that, though. Well, you know, when a new CEO comes in, they generally like to bring in a couple of their own people, shake things up a little bit. So there's no great surprise. No, certainly, um, someone new comes in, they have a different view of the world. They want to set their set up their own kind of uh, their own systems. They want to have management that are going to be there for the, the medium to long term. You're talking people. Some of these people are very close to retirement anyway. She wants people locked in for four or five years so she can actually pitch to the market that she's got a plan in June and that she's got the people at the upper echelons to be able to to be able to implement that plan.
And trading wise, Bank of Ireland, good shape? Uh, Bank of Ireland, good shape. Um, they're not as bad off as some of the other banks when it comes to non-performing loans. They've managed to avoid uh, some of the negative headlines that other banks would have had in terms of uh, selling non-performing assets. Bank of Ireland has always held to the view that it will work through its, its, its non-performing loans. Um, the big issue for bank and, and other banks is is trying to rebuild their balance sheets and trying to... Uh, uh, regrow their 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 loan portfolios in order to be able to generate kind of uh, growth in 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 their underlying profits. Okay, and that capital markets say again, Joe. When is it? It's June. June I think it's twenty second, twenty third. Okay, all right. Yeah. We'll get you back in uh, around around that time to update us on uh, the latest strategy moves by Bank of Ireland. Joe Ryan, thanks for joining us. Uh, Going to switch now to Chris Johns. Chris is joining us uh, by phone uh, from the UK to talk about global stock markets. Now, Chris, thank you for joining us. Uh, you wrote a, a very good column uh, earlier this week, as indeed you do most weeks uh, for the Irish Times, um, about stock markets and how we uh, we should perhaps be a bit more nervous uh, about them than just the, the current trade war tremors that are going around the place. And you began it by uh, posing a question, which I, I'm going to put to you uh, now, uh, namely, how worried should we be about the renewed stock market turbulence in the wake of Donald Trump's imposition of trade tariffs? Well, thanks, Kuhn. Yeah, um, I'm more worried now than when I was at the beginning of the year. You might recall that uh, we had another one of these bouts of stock market turbulence and quite heavy falls. Uh, at the time, I didn't think it was that much to worry about. I was more interested in what was actually causing it. And at the time, I thought it was more likely to be robot-based trading than anything more economically, fundamentally based. This time around, with all the usual caveats about stock market volatility usually not signifying very much, I think there is something to worry about. And I think there are actually two or three things um, that lead to more concern than would, that would normally be the case. There are the tariffs. Um, the, the issue there is that tariffs are not good for economic growth. The more tariffs there are, the less economic growth is going to be, which is not good for stock markets. In the limit, we remember the 1930s depression that was in part at least caused by a tariff war globally. I don't think it's going to be that bad. I think that cooler heads are going to prevail eventually, but at the moment, it's not good. Um, so tariffs are one concern. Uh, but there, there are other concerns as well. There's, there's geopolitics. Um, Trump's cabinet is getting more hawkish. He um, appointed somebody last week, Mr. Bolton, as national security advisor. And that's worried many people in Asia that that's going to lead to conflict in Asia, um, either in um, uh, Korea or possibly in the Middle East, in, in, in Iran, or maybe even both. So that, that's something else that I think markets need to worry about. But perhaps the, 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 as important, or from a market point of view, um, as important, the, it's, it's what's happening to technology stocks that, that, that concerns me. A lot of the growth in stock markets in recent years has been driven by what we call the fangs, which is Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, um, those, those companies. And it looks as if that era of supercharged growth for all of those tech companies is now under threat, mostly because of people waking up to the idea that uh, all, of this, all of these profits that they're earning is essentially giving them for nothing by ourselves, via our data. Um, and the point I made in, in the piece was that at the end of the day, accounts have to add up. Anybody with an accounting mindset knows that if you've got assets, you get somewhere in the system there's liabilities. If you've got profits, it's somewhere in the system there's got to be matching expenses. And we know what the assets are of these companies. It's data. 
and we know what their profits are. You know, we, we see them every day. And um, what we don't know is where the liabilities are and who's, who's bearing the expenses. It's us, actually. And I think the regulators are close to sussing this out. And Facebook, having blotted its copybook in the way that it has, means that maybe the heyday of these, these supercharged profits growth are, are starting to come to an end. That's a very big maybe. You know, it's, it's early days yet. But um, one of the interesting things of the last couple of days, yesterday in particular, was that the renewed sell-off was driven by these technology companies. So I think there's, there's at least three things there to, to be concerned about this time. Let's take the tariffs issue, maybe. Are you uh, at least a little cheered about the uh, agreement that, that was reached between the EU and Britain in relation to Brexit and its transition deal? Yeah, um, I think the best way of describing what's been going on with Brexit is that um, an EU, an old hand at the EU negotiations put it very well the other day, saying that for, for decades the UK managed to stay in the EU with as many opt-outs as it possibly could get. It opted out of the single currency, it opted out of this, that and the other agency agreement. Um, what's happening now is that they are leaving the EU but negotiating as many opt-ins as they possibly can. So it becomes a kind of a Brexit in name only is the hope that we have at the moment. First of all, it's been long-fingered. Um, Theresa May keeps insisting that what happens between now and 2020 is an implementation period. That is an abuse of the language because at the moment there is nothing to implement because nothing has been agreed as to what will actually happen post-2020. It's all being left to when they actually leave. And the, the tone and the feel of the debate in the UK has shifted somewhat. The arch-Brexiteers have been moaning, of course, over capitulation and surrender and betrayal and all of those sorts of things, but not terribly loudly. There's a, a, almost a sullen acceptance that what's going to happen now is that they leave this time next year. It's almost exactly one year away now when they actually leave. Nothing is going to happen on that day apart from a few headlines. And then they're going to spend the next couple of years talking about what happens next. And the hope at the moment is that what happens next after 20, December 2020 is not very much. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of water to flow under that bridge. But that does leave you feeling a wee bit more optimistic than perhaps before when we were very worried about cliff edges and crashing out without a deal. So th those things are still possible. I think th those concerns will ebb and flow. They'll come back to haunt us a couple of times during these difficult negotiations that will take place over the next three and a bit years. Um, but, it, but it is on the long finger and it is a wee bit more hopeful than it was. So, yeah, that's a source of optimism, particularly, of course, for Ireland. And Chris, the stock markets had had a fabulous run up until earlier this year when uh, when there was a dip, as you mentioned. Um, was it not just inevitable that there was going to be a wobble at some point? And is it not in inevitable uh, in the sense that for the next uh, period, who knows how long, because of the various uh, reasons you outlined earlier, we're going to be in choppy waters? Yeah, I mean, stock markets have been going up since essentially in a straight line, with the odd wobble, of course. As you say, they always do wobble, but they've been going up now for since March 2009 is, is, for example, when the US S&P um, bottomed. To give you an idea of, of, of how much and how far they've traveled since then, it's a very easy number to remember for that, for that uh, March, March 2009 date. It, it, the the, the S&P 500, the broad share index for the United States, bottomed out at 666, a very memorable number. And it's currently wobbling around about 2,700. So it, it, it's up an awful lot in that period. And it, as, as the old saying goes, if history is any guide, stock markets always wobble around. They often do so for no apparent reason, 
that was earlier in the year, as I mentioned. Um, more recently, I think there are other good reasons. And that, that level of the S&P 500 index, the broad U.S. equity market, corresponds to what we call valuation measures like price-earnings ratios, those sorts of things that equity analysts witter on about. And it means that the valuation of, of, of the U.S. in particular is, is pretty rich. Um, it, it, it looks to many of us as being overvalued. So if you have all the things to worry about with an overvalued stock market, Back in March 2009, it was very undervalued, and um, a lot, there were lots of things to worry about then, but the undervaluation was the, was the thing that propelled it forward. If you have a vulnerable stock market, because it is expensive, it's overvalued, and you've got things to worry about, that, I think, adds to the concerns that, um, you know, if history is any guide, we'd, we'd do uh, something of, of maybe, not even, maybe not a bear market in the traditional sense, but certainly a market that doesn't keep going up in the way that it has for the last few years. Anybody betting that returns going forward are going to be like they were over the last few years, I think, I think we'll be making a mistake. And are there any safe havens uh, that people should be looking at? There's never a safe haven when it comes to equity investing. It's the highest risk form of investing, perhaps, um, uh, or one of them anyway. But, it, but all of those remarks I made about the U.S. equity market apply with less force elsewhere in the world. So, for example, European equities, to me, look quite reasonably valued. And I think that uh, recent falls in Europe have set up some very interesting opportunities for people to think about buying. I'd also be quite optimistic about emerging markets. I mean, I, in my column, I think I've written about emerging markets a couple of times in recent years and expressed that optimism. I still think that they are, you know, a, a, a more reasonable bet um, for investors than the U.S. As an equity investor, I'd probably avoid U.S. equities um, quite, you know, con- to a considerable extent at the moment and just search for opportunities, particularly in Europe, but also in, emer- in emerging markets. And finally, Chris, um, how worried should we be about what's going on with Russia at the minute and the tensions that exist between Russia uh, and the West? I mean, even Ireland has gotten in on the game of uh, expelling diplomats. It, 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 it's very reminiscent of, of, of you know, being, being the age I am of growing up in the 1960s and 1970s. These tit-for-tat expulsions of diplomats seem to happen all the time back then. And, of course, with the, with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism, we'd hoped for, for, for better relations. So it, so, it, so it is a step backwards, and it is a, it is a source of concern. I don't think we're anywhere near um, the sort of uh, pressure points or conflict points that we got to in the 1960s in particular, um, but clearly, um, you know, the, the, the situation is deteriorating and, this, and the relationship between countries like Britain in particular and Russia have not been as bad, you know, for decades. And um, we always used to worry back then about pressure points producing um, reactions. And that, that's the concern going forward. Um, I don't think we're anywhere near as close to being as worried as we were back then, but, but certainly it's, it's getting worse. And it depends what you think in particular Putin is up to. Um, a lot of people think that all of these things that he's been doing are, are preludes to having a go at, in the Baltics, to having a go at, at, at getting those countries back. And I know that people in those countries in particular uh, are, are concerned that what he did to Crimea, for example, he's going to do to them. And if this that is La- happen, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia. And Estonia, those three countries, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, that, you know, it, it, one would assume that if, he, if that is the plan, then that's, that risks a serious confl- conflagration in, in that region. And that, that's where things could go spectacularly wrong. That, that can't be one central case. That's not a, you know, that's not some, I'm not forecasting that he's going to march into any or all of those countries, but I know that's what people are worried, that if he is playing a long game here about testing the West's response, and every time he tests the West, the West's response is feeble, 
to the extent that he continues to believe it's feeble, that will give him the license that he thinks he needs to go into those countries. Mm. All right. Well, on that depressing note, uh, Chris Johns, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Joe Brennan, Colin Keane, Laura Slattery and Chris Johns. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed every day on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.